This is Chris Goldberg. Uh, Thank you for reading Philly Lacrosse and listening to the next More Than a Club podcast. Welcome to the More Than a Club podcast with Marty Cuprian and Bill Leahy. Welcome back to the More Than a Club podcast, season three, episode three. We're thrilled to have you back listening as we delve into parent issues, player issues, and coaching challenges. Thanks, Bill. With the fall ball season underway here at Next, we're pumped to keep talking about our favorite sport and bringing valuable conversations to our players, parents, and coaches. I'm excited to learn more from today's guest. Joining us today is an excellent local coach who has made a significant difference in the life of his players in the history of Philadelphia lacrosse. We welcome Coach John Beezer, head coach right here in Philly from Radnor High School. Welcome, Coach. Thanks, guys. Uh, it's awesome to be with both of you. Uh, you guys have been great friends to me and our program. Uh, Bill, just getting started coaching at Radnor. I, I didn't know what I was doing. I'm not sure if I have that all together today. but I, I think and, you do. And, I think and, we're good there. Yeah, anything I needed, you were always there as somebody that would help and uh, just appreciated that. And Marty, you, you've coached a lot of our guys from Radnor over the years, and they've loved playing for you. And I, I've always felt like you took a real interest in our program, and that's a really cool f- thing to feel that bond. So it's uh, awesome to be here tonight. Well, we're grateful to have you, especially since your name probably has come up from other guests as much as anybody else. Just the difference you made in the game back in the 80s and now the difference you're making in young people's lives coaching. So people may not be too familiar with you, but they are now. Right. And we're going to roll through your accolades right here. Okay. So you have to humbly sit there and take it. It's pretty impressive yep. stuff. Here we go. Current Radnor High School head coach, two PA state championships, over 200 wins as a high school head coach. In 1983, high school All-American at the Haverford School here in Philly, a long stick midfielder at the University of Virginia, where you played a significant role in helping UVA reach the national championship game in 1986. While at UVA, he won three consecutive ACC championships. He was named Honorable Mention All-American in both 1985 and 1986. In his junior year, John helped the Cavs to the 1986 NCAA Final Four and scored a goal and had an assist in the championship game as a long stick midi. In his senior year, he played in the college North-South senior all-star game. As a collegiate defenseman and long stick midi, John redefined the position, turning takeaways into offensive opportunities with his speed, agility, and nose for the goal. Amazingly, he scored 30 career points, 17 goals, 13 assists, which is believed to be the NCAA record for a defenseman or long stick midi. We'll go with that. He was inducted into the Haverford School Athletic Hall of Fame in 2005 and the U.S. Lacrosse Philadelphia Hall of Fame chapter in 2009. Pretty impressive, Coach. What did we miss? Well, if uh, my UVA teammates were listening right now, they would say, you forgot to say, Beige, you should have shot. So (laughs) in that 1986 national championship game, we were in overtime against North Carolina. I came down on a fast break. I passed. I usually shot, and uh, that's always come up since then. So they would be saying that right now, that you missed that, and that was a big detail. Yeah. Uh, I think that scoring record, there's no doubt in my mind that's been shattered. Uh, if it was, it was an unofficial one back then, but uh, many guys that are better than me playing the game 
Um, but I would just say that uh, with all the things that you mentioned, uh, the biggest thing to me, and I say this to the guys at Radnor, uh, the sport is about the friends that you make along the way. And that's what defines you later in life. And and uh, you look around and say, I'm so thankful for that. And none of that stuff happens without the guys that you know I was with every day at practice. And, um, and today we remain great friends, which is really awesome. Yeah, some of these events are old school. Like, I, I knew them. For example, the college North-South senior all-star game. I mean, that's a big deal. That's a really big deal. My dad would say, let's go down to Hopkins and watch this yeah. game. These are the best college players in the country from the North versus South gathering at Hopkins Field. Let's go down and watch Billy. Tell us about that event. Uh, that was uh, – it was so much fun. You're playing at Homewood Field at Hopkins, which uh, uh, I always love playing there. Not that we won much there at UVA, but love playing there. And then just to, to meet so many guys whose names you knew, uh, but you, you never met them. Uh, and it was a really fun weekend. Uh, I had some friends from Hereford that came down. My parents were there. And uh, I just remember the lights that night feeling so bright and the game being so fast and sort of magical. So um, it was just a really awesome experience. Yeah, so what's magical along with that is how you redefine the, the position of long stick midi. And every guest that brought up your name, they, they kind of count you in as the, the grandfather of the position. Right. So I know that starts at Haverford School and it rolls on. And I'm blessed every day to work with the, the grandfather or godfather of Philadelphia lacrosse going into the National Hall of Fame, Tony Resch. And he always says to me, hey, who's going to be on the show next? And I said, Coach Beezer. And, and his comment is, Coach Beezer is one of the best in the business as a person, as a player, and as a coach. Steady, even-keeled, first-class, proud to have been his teammate on the early Eagles Eye team. He redefined the LSM position. So Tony and I, we've known each other since high school. He was two years ahead of me when he was at Penn Charter. And I've always looked up to him, player, role model, coach. Um, he's the best of the best. And so, uh, but what I remember uh, uh, really well from back in the day, uh, he and I played summer league lacrosse back when it was really popular in college. And we were playing for Smokey Joe's and everybody played summer league back then. And our defense was Zach Colburn from Penn. World team. Yep. And uh, Tony and myself. And those guys were the two most fundamental, play-the-right-way kind of defensemen. <laughs> and then they got saddled with me, who had just uh, no boundaries and was all over the place. But those guys were awesome to me and uh, kind of brought me along, taught me some things, allowed me to play the way I wanted to. And, and uh, I just remember Tony just explaining things to me and – making a big difference just as Zach did. And that was such an incredible experience. And I wish that summer league was still around because we had the time of our lives doing it, made great friends as part of it. But I remember that so well, playing with Tony and just like that mentor feeling. He's trying to teach me how to play the right way. But also I was like, hey, I want you to do your thing, you know. So it was an awesome experience. Yeah, we're going to talk about go do your thing later in the yeah, show. Yeah. But what word comes up the most when your name is mentioned is redefine that you redefine, what do you take from that when people say, is that a compliment and what do you think they mean? So uh, I do take it as a compliment. And uh, when I was at Hereford School, I, I didn't even know what a long stick midi was. And so I played close defense and I went to UVA. I'm like, okay, I'm gonna play close defense there. And they're like, no, we think you're a long stick midi. I'm like, what? And so um, anyway, I rolled with it. And uh, you know, the whole thing with scoring, I think I probably felt like I wasn't a great defenseman um, certainly not great off ball, a little better on ball. And so scoring became my thing. And I think that was probably because 
In soccer, I was a goalie, so I never had a chance to score. I played basketball at Hereford. I could barely make a layup, let alone shoot a jumper. <laughs> so shooting was, you know, something that um, you know, that allowed me to score a few goals. And and the guys I played with, we all made it work. Everybody had their strengths. So, um, but back then, uh, in terms of redefining the position, I would say that. Um, one of the most vivid moments, uh, I remember I went to the 1983 National Championship game at Rutgers, and it was Syracuse-Hopkins. It was an incredible game. Syracuse won 17-16, 17-16. But Syracuse's long stick midi, Fred Opie, scored a goal behind the back. And I was like, oh, my God, I mean, that's amazing. And I watched, and I said to myself, I want to do that. Um, that was incredible. So he was kind of the guy that – got me thinking about scoring and watching him in that game. And um, so. Now, am I correct? And I might be incorrect. But then LSM was not its own category yet? Or was it just considered as a midfielder? Or were you voted as a separate LSM when it came to selecting All-Americans and honorable All-Americans? So I, I think it, it was at the midfield. I can't remember how it was um, classified. So when I got to Virginia as a freshman, you could have as many defensemen on the field as you wanted to. So when Jack Emmer was at Army and they called a timeout and went into a riding situation, he brought he had 10 uh, poles on the field. And so when I got to Virginia, there were no limits. We played, at times, three of us with long poles at midfield. And then it got changed to uh, two. You could have two on the field and a short stick D midi, and it kind of went from there. So I probably would have been out of a job today because there's only one long stick midi, and Rob Schupler, who I played with at Virginia, he was better than me, and he would have been on the field first. So I'm lucky I played back then. He's already rolling, Coop. This is going to be good as we roll into our parent and our coach and our player section. So take it. Yeah, so up next, we'll try to bring a couple quick hitter topics to bring value for our parents, players, and coaches that listen. Um, involving parents or not in the high school journey, a head coach's perspective. Yeah, so, Coach, I thought it would be fun for the two of us as – well, me, a former head coach, you know, a current head coach, you know, when you think of parents, many high school coaches face just contorts. There's a lot of different ways to look at this from daddy agents complaining for playing time to amazing people raising money in your boosters program. So you're a pretty personable guy and do a great job with people. What are your first thoughts when we say parents and Radnor lacrosse and how you relate? So it, it may be a little bit different for me, just to, to my perspective, but I've lived in Radnor Township for 25 years, so I've kind of gr grown up in the uh, community since I was uh, 30 years old. You get to know a lot of people. That was well before I started coaching. So um, there's a really strong sense of community within Radnor that I noticed before I ever started coaching, which was a big reason why my wife and I moved there. So when I started coaching and uh, I, I – what I didn't realize when I started coaching was that um, you're more than a coach. You're a mentor. You're a teacher. You can play the role of a parent. Um, there's a lot that's uh, really there for you to take on. And uh, I think if you want to make a difference in kids' lives, you try to embrace that. And I think what you get to understand is that you're going to be judged. And that's just that's the way it is when you decide that you want to be the head coach. Um, there's there everybody's watching and and um, I think you just need to understand that and John Nostrant explained that to me uh, right when I was thinking about 
uh, taken on the head coach position. He's like, you're going to really put yourself out there. And so I just understand that it's just part of the territory. And at the end of the day, um, parents want best for their kids, right? And so for my wife and I, no different. And, and um, I understand that. I want the journey to be fun, right, and try to embrace the sense of family. I also understand that I won't always get it all right. And um, I think that uh, I've been fortunate in Radnor where um, the parents are about the experience. And and we'll get to the result, but it's about the experience. And, and so, um, you know, for the most part, it's been uh, a close bond, uh, an open bond, I feel like at times if I've struggled with a certain relationship or two, I really look at myself and say, how can I do this better? How can I, if I put myself in their shoes, how do they feel? And so that's important to me. And, and my wife is always great at home sorting things and telling me when you know, she thinks I could do something better or, or, or what have you. So, um, but I think it's just, um, you know, to me as a coach, it's like be real, be transparent, take an interest in every kid um, and make this the best two hours of the day. And so whether they're a sub, a starter, star, shouldn't matter. It's easy to coach the stars or take an interest in stars. And, um, but take an interest in everybody. And I look at my son last year who was playing soccer at Radnor his senior year, and, and he didn't play much, but he came home every day talking about how much fun he had. And Radner's got a great soccer coach. He wants to win, but he's the kids are enjoying that ride while we're there. And I'm looking at, at Chris going, he's he's not playing a lot, but he loves it. And so that kind of stuff resonates with you as a coach. Yeah, so being a father helped? Oh, yeah. You know, I've had three kids go through the Radner School District, and they're all graduated. We've had a variety of experiences. Uh, my oldest tore ACL three different times wow. in high school. Wow. And, um, but... And uh, my two daughters, you know, they played sports, but it wasn't their thing in college. And I, I think what you can you realize as a coach is that um, ki- kids can be all in. They can be committed, it, even if they don't want to play in college. I, I, obviously, I, I love it's great when kids want to play in college and you support that as a coach. But then there are a lot of other kids on the team that they play because they love being with their buddies. And they're all in. And so, um, and my daughters were like that. I, th- I thought that was great and kind of learned from that. But um, yeah, I, I, you, um, as, a, as a parent of three going through it, there's a lot of bumps along the way. And, and um, I think that's definitely made me uh, more sensitive as a coach and um, you know, think about a lot of different things from the parent perspective and, and the player perspective. And I think these you know kids have a lot on their plate. There's a lot moving around more so than when I was in high school and college and trying to be understanding of that. So, so if we go back in time when you were at Haverford, how about your folks? So uh, they were supportive. Um, and I, you know, I always felt like I kind of owned it. I, I was uh, really into soccer and basketball and lacrosse and – uh, I switched to soccer in eighth grade. I, I switched to lacrosse in eighth grade. Uh, I was a baseball, football guy along with basketball, and they never said anything, and they didn't know anything about lacrosse, and they were like, great. And um, But when it was going to get myself to a recruiting camp or whatever it was, great, we'll pay for it. And I just went along and did my thing. And so they were there. They were supportive. They always gave me confidence. Um, 
You know, I always think about my dad when I was at UVA. Every Monday, I could count on a phone call, and we would talk for an hour about the game, and he never played. You know, he was from Buffalo, never played the game, but he, he became uh, an expert. We had a lot of, you know, we had fun with it going back and forth, and so. Um, so he wasn't a lacrosse guy. No, they, they knew nothing about lacrosse, and, and uh, I got into lacrosse in eighth grade. Uh, the O'Grady brothers, who were – Basically, my neighbors growing up uh, were like, hey, you should play this. And I'm like, okay, great. I jumped in. It was eighth grade, and, and so I became a defenseman. They're like, you, you, you could be good at defense. So we kind of <laughs> rolled from there. And, and uh, so, but a dad from Buffalo with his son playing long stick MIDI, that, that was easy when it came to playing time. Right? That dad's going to be easy going. <laughs> right. Yeah. Which makes yeah. me want to pick your brain you know, a little bit with, with Radner when it come to, came to playing time. Um, any insights on how you handle those situations, players so, and or parents? Yeah, so um, we have a parents meeting typically in November or December, and, and uh, we have that in the school cafeteria at Radnor, and, and we talk for an hour, and I want the parents to understand um, what we're about as coaches, kind of the culture. Um, if anything, it's far from just about lacrosse. Um, but then I also say that, I want us all to have a great ride. And um, there's just a couple things that I'd like everybody to be sensitive to. Um, you want the player to own the relationship with his coach. And I think that um, he get, he gets there when when it's a playing time thing. Let the player approach the coach. And, and I think as a coach, you need to be approachable. Um, you can be intimidating, you know, being older with younger kids. And so you need to be approachable. But I always say let the, the player – uh, own that relationship when it's playing time, or for that matter, what does he need to work on? Let that be a player-coach relationship. Um, but I also say that there are things outside of playing time and what you need to work on that are going on in his life, and they may not be lacrosse-related. And if, if I can help, I, I want to help. So and uh, I enjoy the conversations I have with the parents. And so and, I, and I'll tell you that, you know, I, I listen. You know, I, I, I want to evolve. I want to get better. Uh, I can remember being at a you know a, a parent social in March a couple of years ago, and um, uh, one of the parents who I have a nice relationship with was like, "Hey, I think my son could play more and be better." And I just appreciated her honesty. And at first, I was a little surprised, and then I went home and I thought about it, and I'm like, you know, actually, she's right. And and so um, I, I just felt that I'm like, okay, and sorted that, and and uh, he ended up being a, a really good player, really additive player for us, and. So I, I, uh, uh, I, I just I, I look at it as it takes a village in, in raising kids, as we all know. And um, so I, I want there to be open communication uh, and I want to help. Um, I may get emails or something like that from a parent. Right. Uh, and I always just pick up the phone and call. I'd rather just talk and have a conversation. And um, but really, I, I've, um, it's it's been a. Uh, a good experience. There is a sense of community and I, I want it to be like a sense of family. Um, and so it's been positive and here and there, yeah, there might be some challenges. And I think the key thing is just communication. And as a coach, not thinking that you have all the answers, don't get caught up in coach speak, you know, just be real, um, be understanding. And then I think on the parent side, I, uh, as we you communicate kind of the right way, like anything in life, and you'll figure it out and you'll be better for it. So, but I would wouldn't want to create an environment where I wouldn't be approachable and 
and there's just a lot going on for kids. So mm-hmm. you're a good man, coach. Yeah. yeah what a great answer. Um, so much there for everyone, parents, players, and, and, and coaches looking to deliver expectations and manage that. Let's move on. Uh, let's give out something for our coaches out there. We like to call it our X and O insights of the week. So coach, we chatted a little pre-show about this. You know, I struggled over my years with having guys who followed the system and then guys who were talented enough to sometimes drift away from the system. And as a coach, you, you, you you want to balance that because you have guys, for example, I had a young man named Colin Cahill, and Colin did everything right. His IQ was exceptional for the game and in the classroom. He understood kind of what I was thinking. He was my coaching shadow. He had this similar mind. He would follow the offense as designed. He was a good off-ball player. You know, in a tough situation or an overtime, I want Colin on the field. I used to say, I can count on Colin. Even if Colin doesn't get it right. I know he's within the system and I know his brain is at the AP level and I can win or lose and live with this. And then of course, later in my career, I had Matt Rambo who was often heading out to left field, but it was amazing. Right. And so my wife used to say, well, hey, what play do you run that's called no, no, yes. And I'm like, that's no, Matt, no, no, yes. Oh my gosh, It's a yes. favorite one. So I know there are two extremes, but, and guys fall within that continuum all over, all over the, the field. So how do you manage you know, system players and some of the free-thinking, like you were a free-thinking person, free-spirited player. What's your approach to these guys? Right. So I, I was fortunate in high school and in college that um, I was allowed to sort of play free, maybe too free at times. But I, I think you're, you're trying to buy, uh, find the balance. So if you've, if you've got six guys on the field on offense and their personality is all about playing free – that might be challenging, and, and you need your glue guys, your system guys. So, that would be chaos in my world, just yeah, so you know, as a yeah, super structured, double structured coach. That would be wild. Yeah. So, but I think uh, as a player, that uh, you, you love to try and hit home runs, right? And so uh, you want guys to take chances. And so to me, it's, it's, um, all about the the risk reward and you don't want it to be an all or nothing situation you want guys to have freedom to go make plays but you want them i heard john danowski say once play the percentages and we talk about that all the time play the percentages so and i think some of it is just having guys understand their roles where you're being open it's like hey that shot from 13 yards we, we can get a better shot you're you know, you're better inside the paint shooting or whatever it might be. So some guys have a little bit more freedom. Other guys, you just get them to understand where their strengths are. But I think for for me, you know, no different than it would be for you. We don't glorify goals, right? We always talk about doing the little things, and, and that could be off-ball play. Uh, that could be just riding back and, and relentlessly to the midline and, and maybe creating a turnover. Um, but just uh, praising those little things and, and – I can think about so many really effective players for us that were glue guys. And, um, and then you have your home run hitters that you give freedom to. But to me, it's, it's about hitting singles. And, and I think that really talented player becomes all of his ability when he's figured out that it's not all or nothing, that he is playing the percentages. You've given him the freedom, but uh, it's not a turnover if it doesn't go the wrong way. So... And I think that takes time. I think by maybe their junior year, they start to figure it out. But, you know, I'm a fan of wanting guys to play. And I think our coaching staff, which uh, uh, any success I have is about them, and I'll talk about them later, those guys, like I watch what Mark Patron does with our offense. 
and he lets guys play, and there's a system, but he's created this uh, feeling of being able to play instinctive, fluid team offense um, that involves all six guys. And so, um, uh, you know, I, we want everybody to be to be a factor in the offense. Everybody's role can be a little bit different. Um, but to get back to your point, uh, some guys you're going to let take more chances. Um, other guys, you're just trying to get the, get them to understand what they can and can't do, and and uh, but th- know that they're really valuable. So yeah, and then if you have more of those kind of guys versus more than another kind of guys, that that defines your team. More structured right. system guys, you got to play one way. A whole lot of freelance guys, you have to figure out that. It reminded me in 2008, we won the state championship. We were a pretty structured team. That's more my my style. We beat Malvern 4-3 in the state championship back when it was everybody together. So we roll into 2009 with the entire team back, minus like two guys. And we're still playing the same way. When Westy Hopkins went off to Notre Dame, comes up and says, you know, we're all back. And we all had a year of playing your way. Can we just let it run, dude? Right, right, right. And I'm like, but no, that's not how I do it. And he said, that's how we do it. And after a whole year, you don't trust us enough to let it go. And I was like, same thing. I had to go home. You know, I complained to my wife. She's like, why don't you just listen to them? Yeah. I said, but like 8-5 in a 4-3 state championship, it's right up my alley. She's like, so you saying this is about you? Your problem is you can't win 14-12? And I'm like, I can. I'm not sure Coach Resch is going to be wild about 12. But, you know, and that's what we did. We turned it loose the next year. I mean, until Tyler Narr and a couple other guys got hurt, which we then had to go back, we just turned them loose. And it was a wild ride for somebody like me. But they were right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I look back at our 2015 team that won the state championship, and we had guys that, by and large, were home run hitters, and we try to figure that out. Fortunately, we had some really good glue guys that that uh, made it all work, and I think the group that just just finished here in 2021, uh, uh, more system oriented, and and there was a lot of depth, and so that was a different feeling um, in terms of how they were playing offense or defense, for that matter. Great stuff. Let's move on to what's usually our culture building section for players, uh, but really it's for everyone. Everything that you're you're hitting on is um, going to resonate with our audience. So, uh, John, let's have a little fun here in celebrating the 2021 state championship, uh, which was your second, the first coming in 2015, which you just mentioned. And uh, the girls at Radnor also won the state championship. So what's, what's in the water over there? And tell us about that ride. So I, I think for us, just getting the season started, uh, our guys would be like, Coach, are we going to have a season in January and February? And then it was, are we going to play non-league games? Will there be districts and, or states? And, and we just talked about focusing on what we can control. And I think we just we loved being together every day that we could practice. And, and, um, and then you look at it, like 25 games later, you get all of that. And it was – awesome to be playing. We appreciated it. We love being together. And then to win, obviously, was, uh, was, was an incredible feeling. And, uh, you know, what's in the water at, uh, <laughs> at Radnor? I think about that question. And there's a lot of people in, in the community that really care about lacrosse. And, and Peter Sampson is the one that really started all that. Um, he made it happen. He took an interest in everybody. He wanted everybody to play this game. Um, and, and really supported him. So Radner is much about what he uh, put together as a foundation. And then, you know, with this specific group that just came through, you know, we've had a dad group uh, that's been there from the very beginning. Guys like Damian Romando Sr., Tommy Hannum, 
Mike Murphy coaching at Penn, but still taking an interest in the in in the program and the guys when they're a young age. Um, but I also think that the the community is really inclusive. Where our two captains, Grant Pierce and Mark McKeon, both moved to the area in middle school, and so one came from California, one came from Chicago, and they are the two captains. And all these guys have been playing with the other since first grade. So I think that. Uh, it's in- inclusive is uh, important. It's part of it. Um, and then I would say for the girls and guys winning it together, um, a, a really close group. They, they cheered for each other. Um, we went down to Springfield to play the state semifinals. We're both playing Conestoga. My guys never ask me, hey, coach, what time are we going to get to the game? But they're all asking me because they want to be there to cheer. They want to watch the game. And they're watching from the end zone and and going nuts in a really good way, having <laughs> so much fun. And it was just cool to watch. And and so the coaching staffs on both teams were, were close. Kristen Addis is a phenomenal person and a coach. I was sorry to see her step down, but she has young kids. But she and I were sharing one field. You've seen all the construction over at yeah. Radnor. And so that's challenging. But we had fun with it, and and um, it was a really cool ride. And, and um, so it just – fortunate feel appreciative that we could play and then you get all that it's it's um it was it was really neat so yeah that's the term radner sweep 2021 yeah 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 love it so yeah with this being the culture section you know are there specific attributes uh within your program or kind of phrases that you know you would say um define your culture or what you're looking for for your athletes I would say that it's uh, it's both uh, coach related and, and player related. I think as a, as a coach, uh, and I'm being a little bit redundant, but as a staff, we reinforce talk about taking an interest in every player. And uh, and this year we talked about everybody's a one. Uh, yes, we have a scout team, but everybody's a one. And and a lot of everybody got a chance to play a lot as the way our season worked out, but. Um, just instilling that confidence in all of our guys, believing in them, supporting them, taking an interest. And, I mean, that's a, such a cool feeling for the player. So uh, I always say, again, it's easy to take an interest in the stars, but 35 guys on a roster, and I think our coaching staff really in, embraces that. Um, and then as a player, that we, we take an interest in others, right, and that we are inclusive, and it's not about the stars, and that – uh, we'll be a really good team when you take more of an interest in the guy on your left and your right than you do yourself. And I think the guys get that. And one of the things I always tell them is that one of the more overused term in team sports is family. And families, you have to work to be a really good family. And it's easy to be a, a family when, th- when times are good and you're winning, but you lose a couple. Um, do you stick together? Do you have each other's back? And uh, are you really a brotherhood? So, and you go through a season and you find those moments. And we lost in the districts to Springfield, and and uh, that was a, an incredible game. Uh, it was a really tough defeat. I don't think we had our guys ready to play. Um, you can't find a better coaching staff than Springfield. Um, but my my point is, the next day we got to practice, and it's like, okay, we had a bump. But we can still, you know, we still have a chance to play. And this tests the family. This tests the brotherhood. We all stick together, right? You know, coaching staff, players. We all know we can do it better. And um, and from that, don't have any. Let's not have any regrets. So 
that's that's a big part of it. And you know, one of the things that I, I, I always talk about is that everybody's role matters, right? Everybody's role can be a little bit different. Your importance to the team is all equal. And that's easy to say that, and then the kids need to feel that that's actually the case, that everybody's equally important. And get that everybody's role might be a little bit different, but it matters. And that is something that we really um, try to you know, reinforce every day. To that point, I love the phrase, everybody's a one. So how do you reinforce that? How do you put that into action so that if I'm you know, a sophomore looking around going, I'm a one? So uh, I, I think some of that is uh, related to um, getting chances to play, right? And so uh, we had a season where we had some games that were winning. And um, my thing is that um, unless we need to because it's a close game, we're not going to score more than 15 goals. Um, and that I want to get guys in real playing time. Uh, if it's a 7 nothing game, I don't want the starters to stay until it's 12 or 13 nothing, right? And so um, George Corrigan Sr., who was a great mentor to me, Bill on your staff at LaSalle, on our staff at Radnor, he used to always say to me, Beige, if guys get a chance to play in the games, they're going to practice so much harder. So for me, when I say everybody's a one, it is uh, that I put my money where my mouth is and they're getting that opportunity. And we also talk about the next man up, right? So you're going to get injuries. And in COVID, you're going to get people tapped on the shoulder and saying, hey, you're actually uh, you know, contact traced. You're sitting out the next two games or whatever mm -hmm. it is. So it's the next man up. And if that kid has believed that he's a one, that transition is uh, he, he goes in playing with confidence. So there's a couple different ways that I look at it. So, um, but it is something that we talked about all season. And that's on top of not having a locker room, right? Did you, were you able to have a space where you could share? Um, there, there was no locker room. Yeah. And um, so I think there's some part of you that could say that COVID was challenging as a coach. And, and that's true, but in some ways it simplified things. And so there was no locker room. And you brought your bag and you came to the field. And so – on game day, right, our guys are used to being in the locker room, having their time together. And so what we would do is that for home games, we met an hour and 15 minutes before the game, if we could work it out with the schedule. And those guys, we called it outdoor locker locker room time. They're out there. I'm, I'm not next to them. I'm doing my own thing. Letting them do their thing. And, and they like to joke around or whatever it is. And so try to replicate that but understand that it needs to be outside. So in some ways – um, COVID simplified things. Um, we didn't take a, you know, we didn't take a bus until the playoffs. Guys drove through the games. That's just the way we decided to do it at Radnor, and the administration was supportive. And uh, until we lost to Springfield, and I felt like, okay, we need to get our focus right. And we went to Kennett for the third place game. I'm like, guys, we're back on the bus. And then we rode the bus the rest of the way home to the state championship. It was just time to change. But again, um, you know, it's. Uh, different uh, answers to that question but yeah I'm with you on the bus to me the bus was a rolling locker room like everybody on the bus and everybody to the game and home and unless you have a test or yeah. something big but you know for all of you who didn't have a locker room and you, you often win in the locker room before you even play and didn't have a bus and all of you coaches getting through that COVID season while a guy like me bails out and retires right. I, I didn't know I didn't know it was coming right. but however I watched all of you yeah. thinking good for them yeah. that they're good men good coaches
Moving on to our guest roundtable section of the show. We've talked a little bit with John already about his upbringing, how he got into lacrosse from being a baseball guy, how he got into LSM. Let's talk a little bit about the most important coaches uh, that influenced you along the way. So a couple thoughts on coaches at the high school level. Um, I had coaches of a wide variety, and there was always something that I sort of took and appreciated from each one of them. Um, at the high school level, uh, and really growing up, probably the one that had the most influence on me is somebody I didn't play for. That's Mike Mayock Sr. And so going to Hereford School starting back in second grade, Pete Mayock was my best friend. And I was over their house almost every Friday night. Mr. Mayock was the coach of Hereford's football team, legendary guy. And we used to be the ball boy. We would hold the first down marker, chains, Friday nights. He would be over it. That we were all there. The athletic directors there. The assistant coaches were there. And I'm in third, fourth, fifth grade. I'm like, this is unbelievable. We'd be down in the basement, and, and Mike Mack Jr., who was the star back when I was in fifth grade, he and Mr. Mack would be down there breaking down film, and, and it was like the coolest thing. And he just had this feeling. He was my math teacher. I always thought I was going to play football at Hereford. He retired before I got to high school. Eventually came back, but. He just had a presence, and so what was really cool after we won the state championship in 2015, he emailed me out of the out of the blue to say congratulations, and I said, I'm coaching much because of your influence on me that I wanted to be you, and uh, he just passed away uh, within the last year. They had a great ceremony at Hereford School in June and uh, to honor just a, an amazing man. So um, in college, uh, Jeff Long was our assistant coach at UVA. He's been the head coach at, at uh, Ithaca College for the last 35 years. He came in my sophomore year, and he got us going. I, I loved his passion, his intensity, his competitive fire to win. He was also funny. And that so my sophomore year, we went to the semifinals, lost to Hopkins. Junior year, we get to the national championship. And I just loved playing for him. I wasn't even on the offense. I mean, I was defense and getting coached by our head coach, who was a great guy. But Jeff Long just made such an impression on me, his competitive fire, his intensity, his desire to win, and also his ability to relate with us um, back then. And I'm still in great touch with him. And, and, but those two guys are who I think about that jump out to me. You, know, you mentioned these influential people, and yet when we become head coaches, it's our assistants or co-coaches that make such a difference in the lives of our players and our lives and keep us on the straight and narrow. You've had and do have an amazing staff. You want to talk a little bit about them? Yeah, so I, I think that you're as good as your staff. And and um, and I just over the past few years, uh, just terrific people. And, and so um, for us at Radnor, we've got Mark Patron, who came over from Hereford School after 16 years there. Uh, he's our offensive coordinator. He's much more than that, um, but he runs our offense. He knows every aspect of the game. He's all in every day. John Sims coaches our defense. He started with me in 2010. Uh, Larry DeCipio is our face-off guy. Uh, then we've had Mike Pagoni uh, come on the staff la uh, last season. He's a guy that I watched at Ridley in Notre Dame and knocked on the door. I said, I'd love to have you. And we've known each other for a while. While And then Cole Yeager was our other assistant face-off guy, graduated in 2009 from Radnor, and then went on to play at Yale and, and Penn State. And then uh, lastly, but just as importantly, Mike Friel's our AD. He was an awesome coach 
um, on the staff for years and then as both an AD and a coach, and, and he's incredibly supportive. So um, to me, like I, I don't micromanage. Mark Patron knows more about offense than I'll ever know. John Sims knows more about defense than I'll ever know. And so I let them do their thing. You know, I have ideas. We have open communication. You will see me. I'm not necessarily in the huddles, right, unless I have something to say, uh, which might look a little strange for the, the head coach. But I might be talking instead to Mike Bagoni about something that's going on in terms of where are we mentally right now and things like that. So, you know, it all, all works. And so uh, without those guys, I'm, I'm, I'm nothing. And, um, and I, I, when I came into coaching, I look around at LaSalle and, and, and Malvern and Harford, and that, that head coach has got to be a leader, as all you guys are and have been. And then you look at who surrounds you, and that's, that's equally important. So I, I feel incredibly lucky. And then, um, you know, at Radnor, it is, uh, we, we've got terrific parent support. Um, we've had booster club presidents with various moms over the years. They make such a difference. And I always say to our players that when I was at Virginia, I thought it was like the best of the best. It was amazing in terms of the attention and all of that. I'm like, our booster club, our parents deliver that and more for you guys and um, create an amazing opportunity. So, we're all moving the needle together is my point. Um, and I, I just, I, I would be nowhere without the whole group that I just talked about. Yeah, people often ask me, what do I miss? And I miss being with the assistant coaches and the co-coaches. I miss being in a room, breaking down film and disagreeing. I miss kind of figuring out how we're going to handle the Hill Academy and all the Canadians and then stepping back and letting Tony Resch handle that since nobody knows dealing with the Canadians better than, than Coach Resch. Right. You know, just that, that, that idea of bringing our minds together for the, for the benefit of something greater, you know, the, the guys, and then trying to actually pull off a victory strategically. Right. You know, we would have Brian Harrington, a fun story with playing Nody at Haverford. You know, Nody would jump into that 10-man ride once in a while, right. and it, so we all knew it was coming. So the idea was to practice for it. And, of course, Tony was like, we'll just throw the ball to whoever the goalie's playing. Keep the game simple. Right. I'm like, great. So we try that. It's out of bounds. Right. The goalie's getting the ground ball. That doesn't work. I'm like, you know what? Coach Cottle wouldn't do that at Loyola. We're going to bring everybody up. We're going to hit a midfielder at the restraining line. He's going to turn, and we're out. Right. We can't do that. right? We throw it. We drop it. It's now a turnover. Brian Harrington says, we're going to just shoot it. So then we get the defenseman to pick it up, 100 yards, not even close. So the three of us are getting nowhere. We're right. arguing with one another. We decide that we'll just, we'll just shoot it. Next day or two days later, we play in the Katie Sampson. Nody jumps right into it. Somewhere in the third quarter, our kid picks it up, guns it right in. Couldn't hit a barn for weeks. Right, right. <laughs> ESPN highlights. I, I remember yeah. that. Stephen I Bergman. remember that, yeah. And Brian Harrington says, that, that's just how we practiced it. And you're like, yeah, right. right. But the, watching three different coaches with three different ideas try to implement it with the guys, yeah. and none of it works. Right. But on the moment that it counts yeah. – Bang. I think the give and take <laughs> with the coaching staff is is priceless, and and uh, you get you get this when you've got passionate coaches, and and you want them to be able to do their thing, and that it's it's there for them to influence, and and so um, yeah, it's and after wins, it's a lot of fun, but then it's interesting. We we lose, and and we'll get together and. The first 45 minutes is kind of feeling sorry for ourselves, and then we kind of figure it out. Like, okay, guys, how are we rolling? Let's get better. Let's move forward. And that's interesting to you know watch that dynamic come together too. So yeah, I enjoyed the business approach to what you were accomplishing. 
my wife would always say, you are so much tougher when you're in the season. And I said, right. that's because I go to these meetings, right? We right. have to figure out right. what we did wrong and what we're accountable for and how we're going to change yeah. it. And so, yeah, good yeah. stuff. I mean, I feel, again, I, the coaching staff at Radnor, they make it fun for me, right? And I can focus on strategic things, culture, whatever it might be. And, and, um, and uh, couldn't do that uh, if we didn't have this kind of group. And so... Um, it's, it's a lot of fun. Coach, you mentioned the phone call from Peter Sampson and what that led to. Tell us more about getting into coaching. So I always was interested in coaching, and, and uh, I, uh, I can remember exactly where I was at work uh, in our office. I got this phone call from Peter Sampson, and I didn't really know who he was. And, and this was going back maybe 2001 or two. And he said, hey, I'm looking for some guys to coach youth lacrosse. And and so I said, sure. So uh, for the next four years, uh, I helped out with Radnor Youth Lacrosse. I, I coached with him and Jack Brennan. Jack Brennan was the CEO of Vanguard at the time. And I just loved how passionate those guys were about uh, the program, the town. They started the youth program uh, many years ago. And those guys just really invigorated me or motivated or inspired me to want to give back. So um, I got into it from that phone call, and, and I met Peter, and we formed a unique relationship after that. And so I did that for four or five years, and I helped out Mike Buzza for one year as an assistant. And then he retired, and the opportunity came up to coach uh, the varsity, and, and I wasn't ready. Um, but they did hire me, and so um, and sort of haven't looked back since. But, so uh, from Haverford to Virginia – to Radner, amazing stops along the way. Any regrets or pitfalls? I would say that you're you're always going to have regrets, right? And I can think about a bunch of different moments as a coach, whether they be tactical, strategical, uh, games, you name it, where um, I made mistakes. And so I think those become regrets when you don't evolve, when you don't try to improve. And so you need to get yourself out of the moment of the mistake and say, well, how do I get better from that? How do I, how do, I do this better? Or how do we have more fun? Or whatever it might be. And so that's always been the focus for me that um, if, if, I, if I don't evolve, if I don't try to improve, um, they will stay as regrets. And so that's what kind of drives me there that I've got a chance to keep getting better. And um, so I... I I would tell you kind of a the funny part of regrets. Uh, this, uh, about a month or two ago, I saw a couple guys from our 2007 team. My first team I coached at Radnor. They're with their wives and their kids. You know, they have kids now, and they're like, "Coach, congrats on winning the state championship." I'm like, "This happened because you guys were willing to put up with me." And I think back to like <laughs> my first few few years of coaching. Like, I didn't know what I was doing. I always say to those guys, "You put up with me," and so any success that we have starts with with you guys back then so we had a few laughs but honestly I just I look at it you're going to make mistakes there's going to be games that you want back there's going to be situations that you want back and you can either decide to you know stick to your knitting and then I think they're going to become regrets or you can say I'm going to improve I'm going to evolve I'm going to look to change this I want to be a better coach leader person and and you go from there so um that's that's my goal. That's what drives me there. So, speaking of evolving, one stop along the way we missed was the glory years of Philadelphia club lacrosse. We had Chris Hupfeld on in season two, 
talking about the late 80s, early 90s, Eagle's Eye and MAB paint teams. So great memories. Uh, absolutely. So I think back to that. And, and actually, when I got out of Virginia, I didn't play lacrosse for five years. And um, I felt like maybe I was a little bit burnt out. I was kind of focused on um, getting started with my career. And it was a little bit of an empty feeling for those years because lacrosse and sports was such a big part of my life. And then GT Corrigan started working me and, and Hup started working me. You need to come back out and play. And so I, I came out and it's uh, MAB, Philadelphia Eagles Eye, and, and uh, played for the next few years and obviously met you, Bill, back uh, when we were practicing in Chestnut Hill under the lights there. And those were great times. And, you know, Philly lacrosse and, and Hup was such a big part of it. But um, I kind of think back to, to that journey um, when I was in, in uh, high school, uh, Philly obviously wasn't that well-known for lacrosse, but I can remember vividly that after my 10th grade year, they put together an all-star team, and we traveled to, to Long Island, and we thought we were good. And it was a rainy day at CW Post, and we were playing the Nassau County All-Stars. And we lost 21-6. to I mean, the game was over in the first quarter. And all I heard was Roddy Marino on the goal. Roddy Marino on the assist. <laughs> right? and he had seven goals and six assists. And I'll get to him in a minute uh, as a future teammate. Um, but it was like, wow, we're, we're so far away. And then the following year, after uh, my junior year in high school, we went to Johns Hopkins. And we played and we played Lock Raven, who had Brian Wood and Craig Boubier. And they had a really good team. And we ended up losing like 9-8. And even though we lost, there was a sense of like, okay, we're arriving. We had guys like Chris Flynn, Peter Ortali. I mean, you couldn't think of better teammates, uh, more competitive guys that you love being with. And there was a whole group of us. But I think there was a sense of accomplishment that like, okay, we're getting Philly on the map here um, back in those high school days. And, and you, you guys obviously know a lot of those guys that were involved. So, um, but it's, it's awesome to see where Philly lacrosse is today. And then I think about all the people that made that happen when I was in high school and college and made it fun for me. And, and they gave back. So you want to give back. And, and that's kind of driven me. Yeah, those names you rattled off, right? Boubier, Wood, being a Baltimore kid, they're the Hopkins pictures you right. have on your bedroom wall. Then you jump to Roddy Marino. And then you rattle off some of our teammates. I mean, you had Billy Miller, yeah. world team player. Chris Flynn, world team player. Yeah. Zach Colburn, Tony Resch on defense. And I'm missing people. Yeah, it was an amazing, amazing group. I was just a role player with all, the, all those stars. But um, it, it's, I think it's a proud feeling for all of us that were involved back then that we made a difference and, and Philly lacrosse is better for it today. So, and I mentioned Roddy Marino, and, and uh, uh, who I had never seen a player like that in high school. And so we went to Virginia. He was a year ahead of me. And – uh, on our teams that had success there, he was our best player. He was also our hardest working player. He was the most unselfish player. He was the guy with the least amount of ego. And that is something that like resonates for me each year at Radnor. And I always say like, if our best players are our hardest workers and they are unselfish and without ego and care about the rest of the group, we got a chance to be good. And, and, that just so jumped out to me. Roddy lives locally. We remain great friends. But uh, his personality about how he went away, went along with his business and carried himself, like that to me is a quiet hallmark 
uh, in our program for what I would hope for. We'll jump from old school club lacrosse to maybe new school club lacrosse. John was nice enough to say at the top of the episode kind of how we've worked together with uh, Next and the club that, that I helped run, coaching some Radnor guys and working with them over the years and um, really just wanted to kind of give some insight there. So after each season, we would write recaps. We had players from, you know, 30 to 40 different high schools, and we'd write a, a blurb on, you know, each Johnny or Joe from that school, whether it was one guy or six guys, and just give our two cents um, on their development with us, how many practices they're maybe skipping out on, what they're doing, and, and try to team up and uh, get on the same page for their development and hopeful recruitment. And I always felt like you were – uh, the classiest, the most responsive, and I felt like we were teammates and partners. Um, and then there were other programs that would never respond or were just anti-club and thought we were the worst people in the world, even though we were writing about their kids and trying to help their program. So I wanted to just thank you for that. It's always meant a lot to Next, the relationship with everyone at Radnor, but uh, specifically you and We've always been huge fans. So wanted to get your perspective on some of that and anything else related to club lacrosse and in this area. Yeah, so I, I love getting your reports and just the communication in general with you and Brett, and uh, it made our guys better. I can think back to reading one of those reports, and there was a question about one of our guys. Is he an attackman or is he a midi? And I'm like, that's a really good question. I'm like, to myself, I'm like, what is he? He's coming into his junior year. And he was he had talent, and we're all trying to figure it out. And so decided, okay, we're going to make him an attackman. And he ended up scoring 40 goals his junior year, and then his senior year he had 50, and we went to the state semifinals. But it was like you guys were so on top of it with your insights, and, and um, so it, it, it makes us better, right? And, and I'm a fan of club lacrosse, right? I, I, I love how today in the summertime that the high school tournaments can be during the week, and the club tournaments can be on the weekend. So it all works, right? And we're not competing for our players. But, um, and, and when I think back to, I talked about those teams that went to Long Island when I was in high school or Baltimore. Well, there was no club back then, but effectively we were a little bit of that. And I think about the friendships that I made with guys from Westchester Henderson, Lower Marion, Penchard, Episcopal, guys that were rivals. And we got to know each other. And we're like, he's a really good guy. This is fun. And so I always tell our players, like, Playing club, you, you get to make new friendships. You meet people. And these are relationships that you could have for the rest of your life. So I think it's a really good thing. And then I've just always appreciated the communication because I don't have all the answers. And I can remember I can remember a lot of the comments. And, and that one just jumps out to me specifically. I'm like, that's a great question. I don't even have the answer. And I need to get on it. So uh, It was like a group project we were trying to figure out together. Yeah. My next question would be about multi-sport athletes. You know, what, what are you saying to parents at that expectations meeting about multiple sports and them playing club lacrosse in different seasons and managing all that? And, you know, do you feel like you're competing at Radnor with those other seasons? Or how do you support those kids, those coaches to do So I'm a huge fan of playing other sports. And uh, for me, playing soccer and basketball and lacrosse, I I can think about the memories that were created from that. And I want our guys to have that. So, uh, you know, I'll get questions like, hey, coach, I'm thinking about swimming or I'm thinking about playing basketball. 
because the guys know we do more in the winter. We don't do much in the fall. And I tell them, I, I want you to play basketball. If you want to play, I want you to play. I think it's awesome. If you want to swim, that's great. And I really do mean that. And I think it's, 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 it's an opportunity. Uh, there's nothing like competing, having new experiences, being coached by others. I can think about stuff that my basketball coach said to me that still influences me today. Same with my soccer coach. And um, it just makes for a well-rounded experience. I think that in the old days, three-sport athletes were more common. I always say that today's three sports realistically might be more like two sports, right? And so I'm not pushing guys to play three sports, but absolutely want to support it. I, I think it, it makes you a better lacrosse player. I think it makes you a better person and just creates experiences and memories that you can have for the rest of your life. And you, whether it's a, a game or a match and soccer or swimming, wrestling, whatever. And, and uh, th- those are cool moments that I want the guys to have. And so uh, they'll get enough lacrosse. And that's why I always say to them, well, you'll get enough lacrosse. And uh, I know you're all in. But pick the, pick the winter sport, play the fall sport, whatever that decision is. Um, totally support it. Yeah, it reminds me of a, a fun story. We had a guy who was on our 2008 state championship team. We go to Hershey Park. You play in the stadium. Great experience in the old creepy locker rooms. And, you know, we're all looking around, and it's, you know, mesmerizing. It's a great experience. He plays football in 2009 in the fall. They go to the state championship at Hershey Park. And their coach is saying, y- your guy, because he was there, led us to the locker rooms. He led us across the field. The rest of the football guys are looking all around, mesmerized. And I got one guy all dialed in because he already been here. He already did all yeah. this. So then spring comes, and we go back to state championship. And now this young man goes to the locker room, which now he's been to, back-to-back. Now it's three-peat. And he goes to the corner of the locker room, and he pulls out a note. I said, what are you doing? His name was Kevin. He said, I wrote my note each time I was in this locker room. <laughs> I said, what does it say? And it says, I'll be back. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, wow, that's what, that's why you play three sports. right?" Absolutely. That's so cool. Yeah. All right, coach, bringing this amazing show to home plate here is our little rapid fire NXT homework. Let's go. So I'm going to ask you what homework you would assign when it's time here for players, parents, and coaches. So you think you're ready for this? Ready to roll? Yes. Okay. What homework do you have for a player who's listening? So, uh, I, I would say that um, I'm not sure if it's a homework assignment, but um, it would be to be a great teammate, right? And that um, it just like how uh, it, it's not all about ability. Uh, it's not all about skills. And that uh, to, uh, you'll get so much from it today and down the road. But uh, just uh, th- thinking about being a great teammate, being inclusive, taking an interest in all the other guys. And um, I just think that's, that's a homework that's really important. And I know we focus on sort of success as a player, where you might be going to college, but love the idea of just being a great teammate and thinking and having that as a conscious thought that you're striving to. Yeah, so. The teacher in me wants to assign John Gordon the hard hat, 21 principles of how to be a great teammate, but it's your homework. Sorry about that. Right. I wasn't. I, I was. A, I was a C student at Hereford, so um, that was pre- maybe the Cliff Notes version there on that. So, all right. Homework for parents who are listening. So, uh, I would just tell you that it, it goes so fast, and trying to find that balance of uh, we want the best for our kids and enjoying the ride, having fun with the ride. Uh, a couple weeks ago, 
I was out walking our dogs and I see some parents running off early morning to a youth soccer game. And I'm like, wow, do I miss that? And it doesn't feel like yesterday that I was uh, carting our daughters off to a uh, youth soccer game or then it's high school and I'm like, one's out of college and one's about to be out of college and Chris has graduated from high school and it just goes so fast. And so I would like, you look at it and say, boy, enjoy it as much as you can. Um, find that balance and um, you can't get this time back. And um, I think that it can be a great experience and and uh, I already miss it knowing that my kids are, they're, uh, they're out of high school. There's no more youth soccer um, or any of that. So you're an empty nester. We are. Yes. Homework for coaches who are listening. So again, I don't have that uh, detailed 21 step plan that you talked about, <laughs> Bill, but um, what I think about uh, is for a, a coach's homework, how do you make those two hours of practice, the best two hours of the day um, for your players. And so we want to win. And I think, you know, uh, I just become more and more conscious of, yes, we want to win, but we want to have fun doing it. How do I make this the best two hours of the day? Um, we have, we want to have purpose, um, but we also want to have fun. And I think uh, I've always really enjoyed watching John Donowski's videos, and I love watching coaching shows like Big Ten Network, SEC Network, and then some of the lacrosse stuff out there. Uh, Donowski and Duke do their coaching videos in the fall, and it just there's a guy that's had incredible success. He makes it fun. Um, he's not serious about being serious, and uh, you sort of. Uh, find that balance between uh, trying to find that balance between fun and, and winning. But again, I, I heard Dave Petromalo say this on a video that I watched. How do I make to uh, practice the best two, uh, two hours of their day? And uh, that resonates. And Jerry Byrne uh, at Harvard saying to me, you don't have to be serious about being serious. And, and um, I love that. I think about that for all that I do. And, and that, um, we only get one chance to do this and, and let's uh, sure you want to be successful, but you want to have fun doing it. And, and uh, I feel like that's something that I'm just trying to get be on top of and, and uh, really do it that way uh, versus my early years where you're younger and you're caught up in winning and you think that that all of that defines you. And at the end of the day, it's that player experience that I think the player remembers, the parents remember. And so, that's my homework. What's that practice plan that makes it the best two hours of the day? And last, what are you reading or listening to these days? So uh, I'm, I'm not a, a great reader. My, my friend Mike Murphy at Penn, um, he likes to tell me he, he reads nine books at a time. <laughs> and so I, 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 can't, I can't do that. But the last book that I did read is How Champions Think, uh, which was written by Bob Rotella back in 2015. And and he was a professor of psychology at UVA when I was there. So when I was watching the NCAA selection show for lacrosse, I heard Lars Tiffany, somebody asked him a question about what book are you reading? And he, sa he said, how ch champions think. So um, one of the things that I, I felt like I've struggled with is that you go through the regular season and, and you sort of, You've got your mojo. You've got your confidence. You know there's going to be another game tomorrow. 
And I would say for myself that I wouldn't normally feel nervousness or anxiety. But when I go to the playoffs, um, it's just different. And so um, I'm like, how do I get a better grip on things mentally? And and so I read How Champions Think, and it, and it talks a lot about optimism and confidence. And so uh, I thought it was a great book. And, and as we went through the playoffs, like that, that just helps me with – practices and and uh and game day uh i can think about some practices that we had during the playoffs where it was like okay the trainer came out and said guys you got to get off the field it's lightning or it's about the lightning and and i'm like okay we only had a 40 minute practice but i'm like i'm good we got we knew this was maybe coming and in the old days i might have been anxious about that but um anyway i i really liked the book and and for me it was just trying to help find that groove in the playoffs. But I, I will say that whether you're coaching, whether you're in the business world, you're teaching, it's a book that's so applicable to all what we want to do if we want to keep evolving and getting better. So that's, uh, I, I don't ask me for the second book because <laughs> that's I, good. It's you been a it. long it's time. <laughs> Coach Murphy also told us that you were a night owl. I couldn't tell if he was joking or serious, but um, you've confirmed that he does read nine books at, a, at the same time. Yeah. So uh, I'll trust that you are a night owl, and we'll find you in Wayne uh, after the next state title. Well, I think he, he definitely says that jokingly because <laughs> I, I am up early. I don't whether I want to be or not, but I wake up at, at five o'clock in the morning, which means I'm asleep pretty early. So I think he was having a little fun with that comment. All good. Awesome. Um, in conclusion, I really wanted to thank you, John and Bill, for this episode. Be easy to see why you've been so successful. It was lots of fun uh, doing this show with you guys and two coaches with so much experience. I think you gave our coaches out there listening a ton to chew on, as well as the players and parents and just lacrosse hardcore junkies. So for our guest, John Bezier, our producer, Justin, and Bill Leahy, this is Coop, and we're signing off from Conshohocken. Just remember, you don't have to be serious about being serious. Thank you. Hell it, coach. Thanks, guys. Oh, you guys make it.